while police photographing our license plate. What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon. This is the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. I'm Marcello Rolando, your host, And my guest today is Eileen Bedell, who is a candidate for U.S. Congress to represent Virginia's 7th District. Eileen is a bit under the weather today, but like most women, she's carrying on. So if we give a little frog in her throat or a cough every now and then, welcome Eileen Bedell. How are you? I am doing extremely well, Marcello. Thank you so much for having me this afternoon. It's my pleasure. Let's jump in. There's so much to talk about. I'd like to mention that we are... Uh, recording this show on the day that we're hearing so much about um, the bombs in New Jersey Mm -hmm. and New York. And even though uh, people say, well, that's way off there. I'm from New York and I still have a place in New York and, of course, in Virginia as well. Tell us, how does one respond in the 21st century running for Congress to this kind of event? What do you hope to see that can, can be happen on a federal level that you can contribute to? Well, I, I think it's it's going to be extremely important, and the more we hear about the suspects, and we should never jump to any conclusions. So let me start with that. It's extremely important we don't jump to any conclusions. It's extremely important that we remember that individuals or even a small group of people is not representative of all people of any um, origin, faith, etc., But I think what's important is we know we live in a time where challenges we are facing have changed. They've even changed since 9-11, which we just recently commemorated the anniversary, the 15-year anniversary. Mm -hmm. And what's happening more and more, as I understand it, is that instead of having these professional organizations, the, the word cell is used back then as to groups that were planning and training and these sorts of things, we're more and more dealing with individuals who have been alienated, they're feeling lonely, they're feeling disenfranchised, and they're very susceptible to influence by organizations that would hope to do harm to Americans or to our country mm-hmm. through the internet. So one of the things that, of course, we need to do is address 
those feelings of disenfranchisement. We need to continue to be the tolerant society that we were founded on that includes everyone so that they that individuals are less susceptible to influence and, and feel less disenfranchised. But we can do that through boosting our intelligence, obviously. We're going to have to continue to do the intelligence surge that's going to be necessary to make sure we stay ahead of, of individuals or groups like this who might do harm. But then we also have to... I think be sure that we um, just on a on a day to day level we need to encourage the type of tolerance that will help people from feeling alienated in this country mm-hmm. and, and and unfortunately right now rhetoric in in the political world is is alienating more and more people and I think quite frankly making us more at risk yes. so I, I'm just hopeful that quite frankly the end of the election cycle will help as well so I hope so because I I hear what you're saying with that if if, if we're going to uh, if if media is going to be constantly blasting uh, those who who speak irrationally uh, mm-hmm. and sensitively about um, other cultures, then uh, you know it's fanning the flames. And I uh, and and we should mention Absolutely. too in the news. If you pay attention, there are in this country in the United States of America, there are people who are committing crimes of. Uh, a bigotry toward, I mean, actual physical crimes toward um, people of the Muslim faith in their neighborhoods. They, we just don't hear about it as much, but if you dig around, speaking of the Internet, the free Internet, you find cases of that. So we all we all need exactly. to... Exactly. Just to add to that, you know, and we don't judge the individuals who are committing those crimes yes. as being representative of their entire or, you know, their... Um, of us, of all of us. Either. Yeah. So we, we have to be sure that we treat everyone equally and understand we're going to have radicalized people on all sides, and they are not representative of us as a whole. And I truly believe that as a society, we will prevail if we continue to work together. Yeah, exactly. So, United yeah. we stand. Let's recapture that. Well, exactly, exactly. Back exactly. to the Commonwealth of Virginia. You are running for the U.S. Congress to represent the Virginia's 7th District. Where is Virginia's 7th District? I mean, I know, but not everybody may. Well, and and in fact, I am surprised the farther along we get in this election cycle, how few people truly understand where the line is, and it's very important, so I'm glad you asked. What's (laughs) critical this year is, of course, that the 7th is one of the districts that was affected by the court-ordered redistricting here in Virginia. Yes. And it was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court, and my opponent, Dave Bratt, was a plaintiff in that case, who, you know, his argument was that he had a right to be reelected. And that's why they shouldn't change the lines. Well, of course, we all know there is no right to be reelected. Yes. And so the court correctly said that's not a reason. And there has been gerrymandering that needs to be addressed. And the seventh, in my opinion, of course, has benefited from the change in the lines. So to be clear, the counties of Hanover and New Kent, which were previously in the seventh, are no longer in the seventh district. Mm. That's very important because, of course, you know, my opponent had taught in at Randolph-Macon, which was in Hanover County, and a large Tea Party base came from Hanover County. Yes. Those are no longer in the 7th Congressional District. We have picked up precincts in um, suburban Henrico, western Henrico, and northern Chesterfield, and we've also added the counties of Powhatan, Nodaway, and Amelia. So for those who live in Powhatan, Nodaway, and Amelia, you are no longer in the 4th. You are now in the seventh, so welcome. Okay. Um, we also, of course, have Orange and Louisa counties going out towards Charlottesville. 
Yes. And then, of course, we go up north where we hit Spotsylvania. Most of Spotsylvania County is in the 7th District. There's a few precincts there bordering the city of Fredericksburg that are in the 1st, but most of Spotsylvania. And, of course, we have Culpeper County as well. Wow. It's huge. So, yes. It's huge. Yes. So, yes, we have northern exurbs of Washington up there with Culpeper and Spotsy. We have suburbs of the city of Richmond. And then, of course, we have rural Virginia as well. So it, there's a huge spectrum of needs that need to be addressed. And how are they going to be addressed with a Congress that seems to want to be to, to stay locked in gridlock? How do you do that? How do you unlock it? Well, first of all, I believe we need to defeat the Tea Party. Yeah. We, we, we need to defeat those members of the Freedom Caucus who have chosen not to govern with um, their majority. And, and I'm... I think we cannot be any more direct than that. The bottom line is we have had Congresses who have been more productive with both sides in the majority, but right now with the um, leverage that the Freedom Caucus is exercising over the House leadership, the Republican House leadership, there's just nowhere to go. There, We are stuck, and I think, quite honestly, that the quickest, not the quickest, the maybe the quickest, the most effective way we have right now to change things is to vote out the members of the Freedom Caucus and make sure that we elect people who understand we have to reach across the aisle. There has to be compromise. And compromise does not equal necessarily giving up. It simply means we have to listen to the people who both elected us and the people who may not have voted for us because they are all Virginians and we have to come to a, to an agreement to keep things moving. So... I think that's going to be one of the first things is to is to get rid of the ideologues that have put their positions above governing, and they need to be reminded that their job is to govern. You know, that's excellently put, Eileen. And I think we should make clear for those who don't know, because I have to say Republicans are brilliant at naming things that are so pro-American sounding that who could be against them, you know? So let's explain that the Freedom Caucus is actually uh, a gathering, I should let you tell us, a, a, a coming together of, or not coming together, but a union of very conservative Republicans, Tea Party Republicans, who are not even willing to work with their Republican majority in the House of Representatives, let alone a Democrat. Elaborate on that, if you will. That's correct. They are a small minority of the current House majority um, that, and my opponent is is a member. Yes. Uh, Interestingly, they don't make their membership public, which I find, you know, Mm. unique um, because I guess not everybody wants to be identified with With it, although they may be members. Um, But they, they... do not work with their leadership or work in sync, you know, they don't synchronize with their leadership to effectively govern and have caused, uh, quite frankly, in in my opinion, it, they are one of the big reasons we're heading towards the risk of a government shutdown in yes. 11 days. Yes. Because they are refusing to support Speaker Ryan's budget. I, as a Democrat, may not agree with everything in the budget, but there was a bipartisan resolution between, you know, John Boehner before he left and, and the Democrats, and we have not been able to get that budget resolved because of the Freedom Caucus. You That's know, a, a large reason, a large part of it. Exactly, and there's so much of that. It, it 
I mean, I, I live for politics and I still go scratch my head because things like uh, needing a 60 vote majority and uh, mm-hmm. and the filibuster being used the way it's been used and Freedom Caucus and, and remembering the Tea Party yelling, shut it down, shut it down. I, I just wonder... Is it that we are, especially when we look at the, the the national election now, I feel, are there a core of people in America that we cannot reach anymore? Are they, and, and if that's true, why? What, what has happened? Is it the recession and they blame, uh, well, whoever they blame, but uh, what, what is happening that we've lost that, um, that, core ability, ability to, to communicate exactly to be amicable um, to uh, communicate to be civil i i think that's a, that's a question those of us on both ends of the political spectrum are asking yes. when you look back and social security for instance is a very important issue for a lot of americans making sure that it remains sustainable social security and medicare programs that they are around for the future generations and of course it there was a threat to Social Security sustainability back in the 80s. And, you know, Ronald Reagan as a Republican and Tip O'Neill, the Speaker of the House and yes. a Democrat, yes. were able to sit down and uh, respect each other enough to hammer out a resolution that made sure we had a sustainable Social Security at the time. Yes. And, and we are constantly asking ourselves, as we're facing this issue again, and how do we make sure in this 21st century following our recession that these vital programs, programs that many, many of our constituents rely on are sustainable, how do we get back to that ability to respect each other? I wish I knew the quick answer. Um, If if I did, I would certainly share it, Marcello. I really am hopeful that, again, this comes down to people listening to shows like yours, making an informed decision about their vote in November, and will believe that someone like me who sees how history has proven that there are good Democrats and good Republicans who know how to work together and respect each other's differences and that we can get back to it, and that's the, the model I'm seeking to achieve, that they will they will elect people who will be willing to sit down and, and rebuild that type of relationship between the, the two majority parties. And to throw throw a little support under your your hope for that, we don't even have to go back as far as Reagan and Tip O'Neill. Uh, after all, uh, uh, former Speaker Boehner and President Obama had yes. were you know practicing that same let's let's work together, united we stand. Well, okay, yeah. we, there are yeah. no easy answers, but there is hope, I think, and justifiable hope. Um, well, and, and I think there's justifiable hope. Um, I mean, just when you consider the rift in the Republican Party, there are moderate Republicans who would like to be working with Democrats and are frustrated again by that sort of misnamed Freedom Caucus. Yes. Um, That we would get a lot more done if we didn't have people who were voting purely on ideology and not on the idea that their job is to actually enact legislation. Do you think much of this rigidity comes from um, Citizens United and uh, and that post-Citizens United era we're living in where big money stakes out a position that has more to do with their profits than what's good for the rest of us? Um, I'm sure in certain races that is absolutely the case. 
and and I think there's more influence in many races than maybe we have here in in Virginia. I don't know that that is the fundamental issue here in the seventh. That, that it's a matter of influence from outside sources like big money, um, so much as it is just a a rabid clinging to a particular philosophy and using the role of representative as a pulpit. And again, I don't think that's the job. If, mm-hmm. if you want to espouse your philosophy, start a radio show. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you have you have a wonderful audience that you can you know have a one way dialogue with all you want, mm-hmm. but that is not what legislation is about. Exactly. And so, the job of a legislature is just not the right place to be preaching a particular philosophy. So. Well, what what do we need most? We the people. What do we need most from Congress? and from our elected officials. After all, that's what you want to be. Um, sure, absolutely. What do we need? Well, because of the size of our district, I can tell you various different answers. And I think that's what's really important to be aware as a representative, especially in a district like mine, that the needs are going to vary significantly from the suburbs of Henrico, where we're dealing with, honestly, I think there's more of an issue about gun safety legislation. And, and more of an acceptance of enacting reasonable gun safety le- legislation like universal background checks mm-hmm. um, and helping people who are graduating from college with their student loan debts and with their maternity leave or their family leave and those sorts of things. Those are bigger priorities in the suburbs. As you move out towards more of the rural areas of the district, we have some fundamental problems, including I mean, there's not reliable broadband access. Mm-hmm. So when you consider training young people or students learning and they don't have reliable access to the internet in the 21st century, you're automatically going to be put as a, at a disadvantage as a student. Yes. You know, in, in the suburbs, students are issued their Chromebooks and are expected to do homework online and are computer savvy from an early age. You can't do that if you don't have reliable broadband access. So that's a bigger need in the rural areas. Um, universally, or I guess I should say district-wide, we need better job training. Yeah. We absolutely need more workforce development. Um, we, I have spoken to small business owners from HVAC companies who cannot find enough industry-certified technicians to meet the need, to manufacturers who cannot find enough people willing to to work in, in their factories. It, we simply need more workforce development and job training, get people employed in higher-paying jobs. That will increase our everybody's income, yes. increase the you know, people's consumer spending, increase tax revenues, without increasing tax rates, and, and that's needed district-wide. So, again, there's a lot of problems, and they vary from county to county, but there are some that are universal. Infrastructure, investment in infrastructure is another district-wide need. Mm. Small businesses are telling me, small businesses, large businesses mm-hmm. are telling me, you know, bottom line is if 95 becomes in such disrepair that it's keeping trucks on the road and they're not able to get their deliveries made and those sorts of things, it's affecting the bottom line of yes. businesses. Yes. And so businesses understand you have to spend some money to make money. And we have to do at least the, the necessary repairs to make sure that we're not affecting the bottom line of these businesses as they're, as they're recovering from the recession. Excellent um, response. There's a lot that needs to be done. Exactly. Excellent response, uh, Eileen Vidal, 
running for U.S. Congress from the uh, Virginia's 7th District. We're going to take a break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. A little Polish film entered indie theaters in 2014 and surprised everyone with its staying power. Ida drew audiences through word of mouth and earned itself a favorite place in the foreign language Oscar race. Under its quiet surface, Ida suggests the universal struggle of mankind to make sense of our existence. This is a world which fights to attain moral goals and leaves behind the detritus of corruption. Ida's journey is our path. A Catholic initiate, Ida's image of self, has been formed in a convent. Before taking her vows, she must now learn the secrets of her past. Guided by her deeply savaged aunt, Ida will discover her ancestry and the devastation that made her an orphan. Here we have allegory, vast human truths presented through an individual story. Visually, every frame of this stunning black-and-white film is worthy of display for the ages, with pearlescent detail emerging effervescent from deep shadow. Beauty defined. Ida is contemplation at its best. True, contemplative might be read as warning, boring, boring, but not here. In this case, it is an apt opportunity to consider the state of mankind and our place within it. Mesmerizing. Ida. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices Talk Radio Show. My guest today is a candidate for U.S. Congress to represent Virginia's 7th District, Eileen Bedell. We mentioned in our last segment, Eileen, Republicans tend to be, and I don't mean this as an anti-Republican statement because I work with a lot and know a lot of Republicans who are good people, who want the best for America, but some of their people that have been elected on the Republican side the, it's that leadership and that divide in that leadership even mm-hmm. that uh, is questionable. And one of the ways I think people are misled are with these very Americanized sounding organizations like Americans for Prosperity. Now, right. that who, who would think that that's something that's bent upon limiting the progress of the 99%? What, what should we explain to our listening audience about these misleading names. Well, and I was going to say, my concerns right now are less about the names of the organizations and more about the names of proposed legislation. Yes. Um, And and there are several that, that I guess as a marketing professional, I would say, well, that was brilliant marketing. Mm -hmm. But when we're supposed to be communicating with the voters and making sure everyone understands what's being done and for what they're voting, I think we need, we have a duty to be more accurate in our naming. So for instance, if you haven't heard yet, I would make sure our listeners check out, we will have two ballot initiatives on the ballot this fall, November 8th, when you go for the presidential and the congressional elections, there will also be two ballot initiatives Mm. for Virginians. The first one is one of those examples of misleading legislation, and it is called the Right to Work Amendment to the Virginia Constitution. Yes. And like you said, the term right to work, who wouldn't who would want to be opposed to someone's right to work? Exactly. Everyone should have the right to work. It sounds like a positive thing. 
We have to be very, very careful, however, that we understand what the right to work amendment to the Virginia Constitution is. And in fact, I would encourage all of our listeners to vote no on ballot initiative one. Vote no on one. Because the right to work amendment to the Virginia Constitution, quite frankly, is unnecessary. We already are a state that is a right-to-work state. That's true. We've had laws in place for over 70 years, and we have not needed to change our, our, our Commonwealth Constitution in order to do that. I think that should be left for the very, very most serious things like discrimination. That, that would be a need for a constitutional amendment mm-hmm. to protect the rights of individuals, of women over the years of African Americans and, and et cetera. Those are constitutional amendments. Statutory changes, I believe, need to remain in, in the purview of the General Assembly that can be changed as the world changes. So we don't need a right to work amendment, number one. But number two, it also is actually intended to allow or to upset the balance between employers and employees. Mm. One of the things that's really important is that there is a balance when employers and employees negotiate contracts that they are on, excuse me, on an even playing field because it benefits both employers and employees if we have good employee benefits make sure that they stay healthy and productive. Um, We need to make sure that our employees are earning enough so that they can also contribute to consumer spending and add to the economy. So it's it's just extremely important that we protect our workforce by making sure that there is a balance when employers and employees negotiate and the right to work amendment would, would upset that balance and would give more of the power to the employers instead of the employees. So they so call I, it the right I to... I encourage people to vote no on one. Okay. Um, but, okay. but that would be a good, one example. So the right to vote amendment in Virginia, that you're right saying... Right to work amendment. Right yeah. to work amendment, uh, that you're saying we should uh, vote against is really not helping the worker? It's against... how? How is it specifically against the worker, the employee? The right to work amendment makes it more difficult for workers to... Um, join together and negotiate their contracts as a group. And so that then it makes it more difficult for them to collectively come to an agreement that the employers you know, either have to accept or maybe lose a pool of a workforce. Again, it upsets the balance of negotiating power. And it is, it's never a good thing as an attorney for almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. When we look at a contract, one of the things that we sometimes attack is whether there was too much of an imbalance in the negotiating power. Gotcha. Was it entered into just because one person had undue influence over the other? And that makes the contract less strong. We don't want that. Neither employers nor employees should ever want that. We need them to have equal bargaining power and the right to work make sure they do. So we're going to vote no, excuse me, the right to work attacks their ability to do that because what they're saying is you have the right to work without joining any sort of group, without engaging in negotiation with your fellow employees. You have the right to, and all of that makes um, that collective bargaining that makes those organizations that work for all the employees weaker and we don't want to weaken those organizations because that's what keeps that balance of power and you're right then now that you explain that i so appreciate that because you're absolutely right virginia the commonwealth of virginia is a right to work state so that yes. particular uh, amend, proposed amendment does absolutely nothing but but strain the the reality of what what is really 
uh, already in place. Okay. What it is is it's a, it's a political um, movement in a political year gotcha. because we have been a right-to-work state for 70-plus years. And we always could change that through the General Assembly. I believe that the Republican majority of our General Assembly right now is trying to make it a constitutional amendment so that as the demographics of Virginia continue to shift, that we would be it would be very, very difficult to change the right to work status. And, and that's not what a constitutional amendment should be for. Gotcha. Yes. Okay. That was bad grammar. But, you know, we need constitutional amendments to really shore up those those initial constitutional rights. The statutes can stay where they are, Mm -hmm. right-to-work statute will stay where it is, and then should down the road in the 21st century the demographics shift and we understand that a right-to-work state is not necessarily a good thing, we can make those changes through our elected officials. The voters will have more power that way also. Very good. Okay. Uh, That's one example. Can I add just one more also? Sure, sure. To these misleading named legislation. Um, legislation known as religious freedom legislation. Very misleading name. We have to remember that we have our religious freedoms protected by the Bill of Rights already. Yes. It has worked wonderfully for 200 plus years. It is not necessary to add additional religious freedom legislation and it's code for allowing people to discriminate. Uh. And it's very important that we understand that a religious freedom bill is not adding any extra protections to our Bill of Rights. It's simply allowing or giving people an excuse to discriminate against others, saying, well, because it's against my religion. Well, if it's against your religion, you don't have to interact if you don't want to sometimes. But more importantly, no one is saying that if you interact with something that's against your religion, it somehow is reflective of you. It's not speech. It's just so it's very it's very nuanced, and we need to be careful of misleading legislation like religious freedom legislation. It's just not necessary. Our Bill of Rights was was effective for hundreds of years and will be in the future. You know, I I have to say, uh, not that uh, it's required to be an attorney to to serve in Congress or that all congressional members are attorneys, but I love it when an attorney such as yourself can explain things in a way that any layman can understand because, again, as we both agree, these these misleading mm-hmm. names of, of, of amendments and proposals and uh, organizations are really meant to trick Americans into believing they're for something that's very good for the common good, and they're not. So we have to be, we have to be diligent. Exactly. Yeah. Tell me. Yeah, exactly. As an as an attorney, you have any plans for our national debt? Uh, I mean, I realize I want to say, in my opinion, uh, that mm-hmm. uh, the national debt is not the same as a family debt. When we sit around and work out your monthly budget to pay your bills, is not not necessarily equatable to uh, mm-hmm. what the national debt is. But still, both family, individual family, and the government must sustain itself financially. So, what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Yes, um, and I'm glad you used the word sustain. I think I had used that earlier as well. That's, that's, I think, the important catchphrase this year because there is no disagreement between, I don't believe, any of the parties that we have a financial challenge that we have to address. Mm. And that challenge is how do we make sure we keep our government sustainable Yes. while providing the much-needed programs, the national defense is kept at a level that's necessary. Um, 
you know, and, and others. So there's no dispute that we have to address that, that financial challenge and we have to make it sustainable. The question is how do we approach it? And my opponent's initial proposal when he refused to um, vote for the budget in the budget committee under regular order, which is why we've now had to abandon regular order again to keep things moving, mm. was that he was requiring they cut $30 billion, I believe it was $30 billion with a B, mm. from what he calls and what is often called the mandatory spending side or unfunded liabilities. Well, those are words that many of us don't understand. Many of us who aren't in Congress don't understand. So mm -hmm. let's be clear. His proposal was that he was requiring this year's budget to cut $30 billion from Social Security, Medicare, and Veterans Benefits. Yes. Side. You know, so don't get confused by the terms entitlements or mandatory spending or unfunded liabilities. We are talking about the Social Security benefits, Medicare benefits of my parents, Millions of Americans, um, elderly Americans, um, and veterans' benefits are also in those programs as well. And his his reaction was, let's just slash them. I don't believe that is the approach we should take. Too many people rely on those benefits to survive. However, we have to make them sustainable. So we have to start addressing some of – or proposing some of the bipartisan solutions we've used in the past. For example, back in the 80s, again, going back to when Social Security was sort of facing – a recent crisis, um, we were reminded that initially Social Security was supposed to cover 90% of all earned income. Yes. And, you know, the whole country, it was supposed to cover at least 90% of people's incomes. Those who made, you know, there would be 10% who made more than what was covered, but 90% of all Americans earned up to the Social Security income limit. Um, we, that has fallen. As income inequality increases, we have more Americans making more, uh, or we have Americans making more, and that income cap for Social Security is only covering 84%, I believe, now. Hmm. So that would be one way that has, over the years, been a bipartisan solution, is to just make sure Social Security is, is what it was intended to be, which is to cover 90%. Hmm. And so if we increase those limits, and by the way, I, I know we start to get into the weeds when we start talking policy a little bit. Can we back up just a touch? Sure. Because I have found that many, many, many Americans do not know that there is an income cap to Social Security. Yes, I know because of my parents. I know very well. Yeah, but, but a lot of Americans don't know that. Yeah. So, so I want to be clear that... For those of us who make less than, I believe it's 118000 or 117500 right now, yes. um, and the majority of us will never make that much, we all pay our Social Security. Mm -hmm. Those who make more than that amount, they've stopped paying Social Security after that amount. And I know so many Americans who had no idea that was the case. Yes. No idea. So what we're talking about is increasing that cap so that that income cap, people will have to pay Social Security up to a higher amount, which would cover 90% of all incomes in America. And, you know, again, a lot of people go, I had no idea mm -hmm. that after they made 117000 they didn't have to pay Social Security anymore. Why is that? Well, That's a good question. You know, uh, <laughs> That's a good question. It is. And I had not too, too long ago on the show delicate uh, Mark Levine who received the communication that he no longer had to pay Social Security because he had reached that limit. And mm -hmm. he questioned it and challenged it, not only, of course, on my radio show, but in the Virginia General Assembly, that that's not the way things uh, should be run. So 
uh, you, you definitely are confirming something we all need to know and be aware of. And speaking of, you know, we're talking about senior citizens, primarily Social Security, but veterans in particular, what is the future for uh, you pretty much covered, I think, the, the, where you stand for senior citizens. But I lump veterans into that because veterans are going through a tremendously difficult time of not getting the kind of uh, efficient uh, mental and physical health uh, right. benefits. Uh, what what can you, as a member of Congress, do about that? Oh well, we all know that. And I think it's going to take some time to right the ship with regards to the efficiency and quality of the care that veterans receive through the VA. Um, You know, I I think we're starting. uh, We certainly had the wake-up call that the programs at the VA had was not reaching a quality or a level of care that was sufficient for people who had risked their lives for our country. Mm. And that's going to be an ongoing process to improve the efficiencies and the availability and the accessibility of quality care for our veterans. Um, And and I'm so glad you brought up mental health because I think it's incredibly important both for our veterans and quite um, candidly for all Americans that we begin to... I should say we continue to um, destigmatize mental health issues yes. and increase accessibility to treatment for mental health issues. It's going to be a big part of criminal justice reform. Yes. And those mental health issues that often lead to substance abuse and then lead to criminal activity, it's a problem for our veterans, it's a problem for our general public. Yes. And it's just going to be critical that mental health is destigmatized and the accessibility to care and treatment. Treatment's yeah. a big word in criminal justice reform. Treatment's a big word in addressing our, benef- our, our veterans' yes. benefits. Yes. How do we not only take care of them in the immediate, but treat them for the future so that they can re-engage in society as productive members? It's, it's going to be critical. There's a lot that we need to do. And again, we cannot, we have to be fiscally responsible in terms of maintaining our country's financial sustainability, but the people who should, who most need the assistance like our veterans cannot be where we make our cuts. Exactly. And, and, and I, just, they've, I, they've completed their, their side of the contract. We have an obligation to care for them. So. Absolutely. And I, and I think also as a, as a side tributary to that too, is that we cannot use our prison system for as mental health institutions. And that is what is happening, requires education at every level in the judicial system, law enforcement, but uh, prison is not a place for people with mental illness. Absolutely, and we know it's far less expensive if we, even starting from the head start, even starting from pre-K, if we educate people early on, if we provide criminal justice reform that treats mental illness versus criminalizes the resulting uh, actions for mental illness, it is far less expensive in the long run to do that than to keep people incarcerated to keep up with the recidivism rate if we don't address the mental health issues in our prison system. So, you know, we have to, stop, like you said, stop using it as a catch-all and realize it is cost-effective to treat people as opposed to just holding on to them in our prison system. Absolutely. So. All right. We, we are out of time. I know you feel strongly about uh, 
uh, education and uh, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, STEM, as it's Absolutely. called. Uh, but we do need to run, and I think I would like you to leave us with whatever that, that final point you want to make and also include a website, Facebook page, how do we get a hold of you, find out more about where you stand and support you. Um, first and foremost, I think the final thing is please vote. I cannot say it enough. Do not, do not take anything for granted. Embrace your rights and your duty to do so and take control of um, our country and our, our commonwealth by exercising that right. Vote, yes. vote, vote. It's very important. And I think it's critically important that you vote for someone, whether in my district or another district, who knows their job is to govern and can work across the aisle and get things done. Yes. You can go and check out my issues, um, biography, all sorts of information at Bedell. It's B-E-D-E-L-L for Virginia.com, all spelled out, Bedell for Virginia.com. You can follow us on Twitter at, at Bedell for VA, which is also our Instagram, Instagram excuse me, handle is at Bedell for VA. Um, and of course, you can donate online at the website. But if you also sign up and join the campaign, you can receive our regular emails as well. So, lots of good ways to reach us. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, we've been listening to, talking with uh, Eileen Bedell, who is a candidate for the United States Congress uh, to represent Virginia's 7th District in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And it has been incredibly informative. Uh, and inspiring, I think, and a, a call to action. And, a, and I echo what she has said, vote, please, and become an informed voter. There's a lot to understand, and we need to make the effort to know that we, we get what's going on and what's being said to us and what's true, what's not, and then, yep. and then make that decision. Um, exactly. Thank you so much, Eileen Bedell. We wish you all the very best. And I don't mind saying I hope you get elected. Okay? Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> You've got my vote. Take All care. Right. Bye now. All right. Bye-bye. Stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Imagine a beautiful vacation resort. Your every need is satisfied. You are comfortable. You stroll surrounded by incredible beauty in the moment, pondering life's unanswerable questions. Now you can understand the pace of Paolo Sorrentino's youth, a reflective film about two old friends still vibrant in mind, if aged in body and soul. A famous composer of symphonies played by Michael Caine and a famous film director, Harvey Keitel, spend their holiday in a posh, old-style health spa resort. Poked, prodded, and pampered in every way, they savor their long friendship, enjoy their glorified status, and contemplate the essence of life itself, all while still coping with the mundane intrusions the world throws their way. A famous young movie star brought to life by Paul Dano shares their time of luxury. He is the embodiment of confident youthful possibility, in contrast to our friend's reality, limitations and wisdom that come with maturity. Dealing with many of the same themes as Sorrentino's last outing, The Great Beauty, which deservedly resulted in an Oscar, youth is a rewarding contemplative experience in beauty, artistry, sensuality, friendship, and all that makes our lives worth living. Youth, not in theaters. 
Discovery Through Rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard around the world. Nothing comes from nothing. Some people are better at following through on behalf of others with their noble thoughts of truth, genuinely praiseworthy love, admirably giving of themselves, committed to the excellence and purity of justice for all. Still, there are no presidents, police, priests, candidates, lives of any color, and certainly no Wall Street bankers who have achieved perfection. However, Thoughtful common sense reveals the bloody truth. The assassinations of President John F. Kennedy, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., Senator Robert Kennedy, and police prove enduring victories, whether revolutions or not, are not sprints, but toiling uphill plods, dragging those who resist letting go of the past. Anyone can have faith, hope, and charity in their hearts and minds when guns, bombs, and trucks aren't killing people. But the real proof of strength of character is holding on when life is tragic. Real change, like healing, requires patience and perseverance, not bailing out when it doesn't go your way. Even the Marshall Plan had strings attached, so believing we are not imperialistic when allowing Caesar-like leaders to build a global empire of military bases as shots heard round the world is as self-deluding as denying melting glaciers. America is not the best in everything any more than Americans are perfect, nor, as 9-11 tragically proved, are we invincible. Nonetheless, we do have the courage to move forward with renewed hope when we prudently investigate violent origins, for nothing comes from nothing. America has been at war for 223 of its 240-year existence, and since conservatives in China, Russia, ISIS, and America haven't learned the futility of this lesson, they continue to turn those they've historically treated as worms into multi-headed anacondas. We are reaping what international banking institutions, oil cravers, and their political enablers have sowed. The predictable violence of Middle East hellfires stoked by Wolfowitz and Cheney and the repercussions of an unhealthy planet extinguishing animal kingdoms, safe food, clean air, and free water. Such inhumane behavior inspires hate to lock and load. Streaming global vengeance is mine between dueling murderous religious zealots and insatiable commercial gluttons. Anyone with a fifth-grade vocabulary can stick a political T-bone in a VP pick P, but adult practitioners of the half-full glass know, with knowledge of our past educating the path of our future, our cup overflows with human kindness. Parable a little old Jewish lady spending her life routing the gender discrimination and religious bias of her youth, opts out of cooking and cleaning to spend her night studying law cases, was supremely knighted the little woman of the house, and therefore not qualified to teach law, at least not for the salary commiserate with a man's. 
petite, only in physical stature, and following Bushrod Washington, Salmon P. Chase, William O. Douglas, Harlan Fisk Stone, Sandra Day O'Connor, Warren Berger, and Abe Fortas precedents, reserving her big legal stick, she softly speaks truth to fakery, whispering for national fact-checking. Knowledge is the power to preserve, protect, and defend. So acknowledge salacious origins undermining out of many one with misinterpreting Bill of Rights to restrict at gunpoint our freedom to peacefully assemble with international economic crisis, with revenge-seeking Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS, with aiding and abetting our acting out fears and hopelessness in road rage, rape, gun violence, police brutality, racial discrimination. From whichever emigrants we descend, European, Asian, African, Hispanic, Muslims, or original Native Americans, we're all in the final stages of the old guards, names like Dulles, Bush, and Koch, 50-year plan to finish off the last remnants of United We Stand and Love Thy Neighbor. We can hope elected officials on all levels rise above gridlock gunk, and that conservatives longing for a lost past, desperately latching on to a ranting Pied Piper, snap out of it. Or, leading by rational example, we can elect the reasonably humane, saying, Our best hope for America is, Give peace, unity, and civility a chance. Because... Nothing comes from nothing. Join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.